I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. In states where coronavirus cases are surging, hospitals are now struggling to keep pace. An internal FEMA memo obtained by ABC News shows hospitals in Arizona 83% full. Mississippi hospitals have limited to no intensive care capacity. In Texas, where eight weeks of reopenings have led to new record-high single-day increases, Governor Greg Abbott today announced a pause to any further phases of reopening. Leaders of the Texas Medical Center in Houston said the hospital system there is becoming increasingly stretched. Dr. Kabir Rizvenku is a critical care doctor at Houston Methodist Sugarland Hospital. What are you seeing? Well, yeah, we're definitely seeing a number of uh, positive cases going up, and there's usually a, a sort of a lag between the number of hospitalizations. And so this week really has been just the beginning of what we're seeing of uh, COVID patients, COVID hospitalizations that are uh, going up. So I think the next few weeks are going to be very critical to see if, uh, if the numbers keep going up. Uh, the statistical, statistically, it can um, turn into a situation where resources could be you know, at maximum in terms of resource utilization. In my opinion, it seems that the patients are younger in age. You know, we definitely have a lot of like the 30 to 50-year-old patients. What do you think that's about, that the cases are skewing younger? You know, I just think that it has to do with who gets infected. So the mortality really lies in the elderly patient population, those that are over the age of 70, maybe in the midst of the, you know, stay at home and uh, mask and using social isolation, maybe the elderly population has been taking that more seriously compared to the younger patient population. I'm not quite sure. The mortality statistics is lower for those that are younger, but they still get sick, you know, and they still would get hospitalized. And so I think maybe that's what we're seeing. Those who um, who went back to work, who kind of drop their guard when it came to wearing masks and social isolation. As you say, a lot of these patients, it seems, will recover. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can uh, you know, curb the mortality curve by a couple of things, just being very aggressive up front. And then the sheer statistics of having younger patients in the ICU. Did this surge surprise you? No, I, it doesn't surprise me. You know, I, I don't, we're dealing with a novel virus. In the very beginning, no one really knew how bad it could be. And I feel like it's part of human nature to say, oh, it can't happen to us. How everything played out is uh, just sort of poor planning, you know. Dr. Kabir Rezvenku at Houston Methodist Sugarland Hospital near Houston. The increasing caseload has consequences for the U.S. economy. Today, we learned another 1.5 million people filed new claims for unemployment benefits. Caleb Silver at Investopedia is with us. These jobless claims figures are just unrelenting. Right. We saw another 1.48 million weekly unemployment claims filed in just the last week. So it's unrelenting. And what we're seeing also is continuing claims, which means people that have been out of work for several weeks or more, that number is not declining as fast as we'd like to see it, which means the pace of rehiring is slower than it should be in a recovery. What's happening out there? Why is that? We have a lot of stop and starts happening in economies all over the country. We're seeing it because of spikes in coronavirus cases in places like Florida, in places like Texas that have been reopened several weeks. You could circle that Memorial Day weekend on your calendar as a time where a lot of these economies got back to work, opened their restaurants, opened their beaches. 
two, three weeks later, we have cases surging in many of those states. So the reopening uh, test that we went through a few weeks ago did not work out. And we're a week and a half away from July 4th, which should be a big weekend for outdoor celebration. It does not look good. Is that it, that the economy doesn't like the mixed signals? New York seems to be doing better, but Texas, Florida, and 25 other states are not? It's that, but also the the unemployment has been so severe in the services part of the economy. And the services part of the economy is about 40%. And that's restaurant workers, leisure workers, the travel industry, you name it. Anything that is a... a Anything that touches those sectors has been impacted greatly, and the rehiring has not come back robustly there. Until that happens, we're going to continue to have a stubbornly high unemployment rate. And although there may be hiring at retail jobs or at minimum wage jobs in some areas of the economy, the robust amount of the workforce that's been out of work for this long is still going to be staggering, and it's going to take months, if not years, to work that off. We saw the news from Macy's today saying that some furloughed employees would start to come back next month, but 3,900 corporate-type jobs would be going away. Right. So Macy's is just another example of an old legacy retailer that is realizing that it was too heavily staffed uh, for an incident like this. And it doesn't need the amount of staffing when the economy comes back because it won't come back the same way. They don't expect as much retail traffic and foot traffic into their stores. They don't expect as much corporate overhead because they're not going to be expanding. Companies are tightening their belts across industries, but you're going to see it most in the retail sector, the transportation sector, the restaurant and leisure sectors. And they're going to realize they don't need as much staffing as they did before. And since the recovery is going to take months, if not years, it may be that long until they're ready to rehire at that kind of a pace. Caleb Silver at Investopedia. There is new research today that shows college students on spring break may have fueled the initial spread of COVID-19 when the pandemic dramatically ramped up in the country back in March. Paul Niekamp at Ball State University is one of the professors who used smartphone data to track the movements of more than 7 million college students. Professor Niekamp's with us now. What'd you find? So what we found, maybe not too surprisingly, spring breakers do bring coronavirus back to their local communities. And in early March, we had a lot of media reports garnering international media attention about these spring, bro- spring breakers flocking to Florida and other spring break destinations and potentially having little regard for the potential spread that they were spread that they would impose back at home. We're worried that travel in general is, is a risk factor for spreading coronavirus. Um, and we're also worried about younger Americans. And so we thought we'd use spring break because spring break um, is determined by a university's academic calendar. And these university academic calendars are determined years in advance. In early March, all of a sudden you had this wave of like coronavirus concern. So you had some students who has effectively had their spring break canceled and you had some students who could just go on spring break and return to campus. So comparing these two, we can, we, what we see is that the students who are able to go on spring break and come back to their local campus led to a longer run increase in coronavirus cases in their local economy, in their local, uh, local area. And that was across the board, no matter where they came from and where they went to? So that's an interesting part of the research project is that we were able to use SafeGraph application data so we can trace where, um, where students uh, go. We, don't, I, we know that we don't have microdata, so there isn't too much of a, a privacy concern because everything is anonymized, but we can trace where students go. So you might expect that some students would have a greater impact in the local area than others. For example, you might be worried about students who are traveling via airplane or students who went to New York City or Florida over spring break. And we do find that these students um, or universities with greater proportions of students who went to these higher risk destinations or who flew, you know, who took a, a riskier mode of transit, we do find that they led to a, a greater increase in coronavirus cases in their home county than the average student. Let's say I'm at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so I'm, I'm in, I'm in uh, Davidson County in Tennessee. I went to spring break in Florida 
where I potentially contracted the coronavirus either in Florida or via my flight to and from Florida. And we're looking at the increase in coronavirus cases in the home county, so the county that houses Vanderbilt University. Sadly, we are not yet able to track the coronavirus cases where students went after they returned to university. So some people went back, some students went back to Vanderbilt or back to the university and then went to their true home, but we don't trace them that far. We can only trace to the, to the coronavirus cases in the county of their university. So we, you could say that our estimate is a lower bound because we're definitely missing out on some of the cases where students, they're coming back to the university, but then they're also, they're going to test positive potentially in a different county. And the highest impact seems to come from students who got on an airplane. Airplanes, New York City, and Florida. What does this research suggest about what colleges and universities should do as they consider bringing students back for classes in the fall? So that is changing day by day. It really depends on where you see the case infection rate being in August. Um, But no matter where you see it, it's going to be non-zero. It's going to be positive, and coronavirus will be a concern. So I think there are some key takeaways we can get from this research, one of which is that universities, if they're going to conduct in-person classes, they need to be cognizant of the fact that their actions, although they might not have too much of a detriment to their low-risk students, could highly impact their higher-risk faculty members or higher-risk members of the surrounding communities. So what can the university do? Well, first of all, like many universities, they could cancel breaks. So Ball State, for example, is canceling all of our, our, fall, all of our fall breaks, or Notre Dame is also doing something similar where they're starting the semester early. Removing all breaks to try to reduce the possibility for long-distance student travel and potentially even finishing the semester, at least in person, um, before Thanksgiving. So that way you don't have students going home. That's a big concern is Thanksgiving break. because Whatever they catch at home or wherever they're traveling, they can bring back to the university area. Professor Paul Niekamp at Ball State University in Indiana. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. You always remind us how new this thing is. It seems like it's been with us forever. I know. But we're learning so much, and we learn about some of the consequences and things it can trigger, like inflammation. Um, But now something else we need to worry about. Yeah, and as we learn about how this virus acts and does damage in some people, TJ, one of the things that's just emerging, some clues about the relationship between COVID actually triggering diabetes. We know diabetes might have been a risk factor, but now it looks like the opposite. So some mini med school here. In type 1 diabetes, immune cells actually destroy something called beta cells in the pancreas, which make insulin. There is now some accumulating evidence, anecdotal reports of some people who have been infected with COVID-19 then subsequently and soon thereafter actually developing diabetes. Now, many organs are involved in regulating blood sugar. It's not just the pancreas, but in the pancreas, they are high density of these ACE2 receptors, which we know this virus uses to infect and get into our cells. In lab-grown pancreas studies, SARS-CoV-2 is showing damage done to these insulin-producing cells. So the science is literally emerging day by day. Okay, so mini-med school, let's continue here then. Uh, You always say you have to observe first. Yep. So what theories are at least emerging? Right, so observation and association are the first steps in the medical and scientific process. But some of the theories that people are thinking about now about how COVID could actually trigger diabetes is, as I said, it's a two-way 
street here. We know that people with diabetes are at greater risk for severe complications of COVID-19, but COVID-19 actually now might be causing diabetes. And in these organoids, these, these lab-grown organs, mini organs, they're showing that this virus can attack cells in the pancreas and killing them in some cases. So there is some mechanism that's being elucidated. The liver, which is also important in glucose regulation, may also be affected. So they're putting together these theories. I, I don't know if I feel smarter or dumber <laughs> listening to you right now, Doc. But uh, in terms of research, though, there's a lot of research. Everybody's focused on different things. Everybody wants a vaccine, right? So much is going on. But how much of a priority is this research? Now? Well, there's a lot we still need to find out, and namely the things we don't know right now about this possible association. We don't know if it's the infection or inflammation or a combination of the two that's driving these changes in glucose regulation. Um, the other thing that they're looking at is if the breakdown um, between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is produced or triggered, that's still unknown. And we also don't know if there should be different screening for patients after they recover from COVID-19 because of this developing and emerging evidence. But you know, clinical trials are ongoing. Data is being collected. We are still learning about this virus because it is so new. So new. All right, Doc. Thank you, as always. Good to see you. All right, estates across the country now reopen. Community leaders are forced to move forward amidst a lot of uncertainty. And joining us now, one place where there's some uncertainty, Utah, in particular Salt Lake City. And the mayor there, Aaron Mendenhall, joins us now. Thank you so much, Madam Mayor, for being here. I know you want to, the ability to mandate that people wear masks. You want the governor to give you that ability or do it himself. We'll get into that a little more in a second. But just as you walk around your town, are you encouraged or discouraged? by the amount of mask wearing and social distancing that you see folks doing? You know, it ebbs and flows depending on where you are. Mm. Sometimes I'm in a restaurant or at a takeout place and everyone has a mask on. Other places you'll show up and no one seems to be wearing them. And I think that trend is on the rise as we it gets hotter here, we get further into summer, and the patience around mask wearing is uh, lowering. At the same time, we see the politicization of wearing a mask. This should not be a political issue for the sake of our own health, of our parents' health, of our economy. We need masks to become normalized, accepted, and something that we do proactively to respect the people around us and protect ourselves. Okay, if people are, if they're not doing it proactively, you would like to see this be a mandate. The governor has resisted calls to mandate it statewide and also not necessarily giving the uh, local communities the ability, folks like yourself, the ability to mandate it yourself. The governor uh, there said he is concerned that requiring a mask could create divisive enforcement issues at a time when we need to come together. What do you make of that statement? I think that coming together is actually the problem right now. Uh, we're, when we are allowing people to come together, because the governor has also said he's not going to shut down our economy again, it's those social interactions that are helping to grow our COVID cases here in Utah, particularly along the Wasatch Front where Salt Lake City, our capital city, resides. It was with recent state legislative action that they took away from every mayor in this state the ability to use our emergency declaration powers to put those kind of restrictions in place, such as requirements for wearing a mask. We now have to seek permission of the governor and the state in order to do those type of things. And I submitted my letter to the governor yesterday requesting that. Uh, you requested. How confident are you that the governor is going to allow? You know, I know that the governor is looking at the public health data 
Um, and he tells us that that is what's driving his decision. Looking at our public health data, particularly in Salt Lake County, uh, shows quite clearly that we are not stabilizing any longer. We are not declining, and we need to put this measure in place. It's incredibly preventative. It works very well compared to other measures that I know the governor isn't willing to consider, and it's something that we need to do quickly in order to save lives. Quickly, and that's something your state epidemiologist is saying as well, say we are quickly getting to the point where the only viable option to manage spread and deaths might be another complete shutdown. Uh, are you fearful of that being a real possibility that as you all and people are trying to reopen and you all are trying to reopen, I know you're a little more restrictive there than other places in the state, but still you're trying to reopen. How close are you the possibility of going backwards now and seeing even a more restrictive shutdown? Well, as you mentioned, I don't think the governor is willing to do that. He's been very clear that he isn't, as has the state legislature, who I know has a large opinion about what happens with the economy. In order to not have to make that choice, which, again, is at the state's um, level and not no longer at a city or county level, they have to take some steps in order to turn the, the number of cases downward. Masks seem like the most obvious one, and they would have to be enforced at a local level if they are enforced. So it really takes the onus off of of the state in many ways, um, and hopefully that's a decision that he'll be making today. All right. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. Uh, Madam Mayor, thank you so much. Be well. Thanks for having me on today. Ah, it's a whole new day now for anybody wanting to go to a theme park this summer. Before you get the family together to hit the road, to hit the rides, make sure you are fully prepared. Six Flags Over Georgia and Whitewater just reopened and Davina Mims is communication manager for those parks. She is with me now. All right now, Davina, I want to go to the park. I want to get in that line. I want to get on my favorite roller coaster. How is this going to be a different experience? We're so excited to reopen our Six Flags Over Georgia and so many other parks across the country rolling out day by day. But there are a few things that will be new when you come back. First of all, you have to make a reservation to come to Six Flags Over Georgia. You do that by going to sixflags.com slash reserve. That allows us to keep a good handle on capacity to make sure folks are uh, maintaining that social distance when inside the park. We also have new thermal imaging technology. So we're taking the temperature of every guest as they walk in to make sure that folks are safe. And of course, if you uh, rate high, we'll ask you to step aside for a moment for second analysis. And then we also have contactless security checkpoints, too. So no more check in the bags. It helps you get to the fun a lot faster. And those are just a couple of the things that we have going on. We also have new clean teams that are rigorously clean in the park continuously. We've got hand washing stations, sanitizing stations. We're doing our part. And what do I need to prepare for um, as I'm going to the park? I assume we all, we all keep masks with us these days. Are those going to be required? Is there anything else I need to keep in mind? Masks are required the entire time they're in the park, as well as on rides, too. We've tested it out, TJ. It works. They stay on. Uh, but we also offer several mask-free break zones throughout the park where folks can go into these areas, which are also separated six feet apart from other groups and parties. You can reconvene with your family, figure out which ride you want to get on next. And then once you exit that area, put the mask back on. Now, you said mask-free zones, but will you not be allowed in if you don't wear a mask? No, every single guest must have a mask. The great thing is we've got some exclusive masks for sale right outside the gate before you get in. So you've got Harley Quinn, Batman, the Joker, you name it. Our villains are here as well as our superheroes <laughs> keeping everybody safe. I've never heard that before. You name it. Our villains are here. That was like a that was a promotional <laughs> thing even. Thank you for uh, giving us some of the details down there in Georgia. 
Anytime you guys want to ride Goliath, let me know. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, up next right here on What You Need to Know. I'm going from Goliath to this now. Uh, the young hearts and minds focused on making significant change in our special series. That is next. Stay with us, folks. So we're back now with some of the young activists making a positive difference across this country. It's all part of our series Spotlight on Young Changemakers this week. My name is Calvin White. My name is Macy Brown. I am Taylor Determined. My name is Timothy Young. I'm also a youth organizer. In seeing the video of George Floyd being publicly lynched, it really just solidified how urgent the race issue in America is how much we're not in a post-racial society like we thought we were with the election of President Obama and how much more work needs to be done. It felt more so as a, how many times am I going to watch a video and not do it. And we were all kind of outraged and looking for Mississippi to finally be on the map with this fight. So we started this Monday night and by Saturday morning, we had 5,000 people out packing the city uh, of Jackson. Seeing the look on people's faces as they were there and seeing those tears rolling down people's eyes during that eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence. The outpouring of people messaging us and calling us saying how inspired they were for change after that demonstration, it made all of those late nights work. What BLM means to not only me, but other Black Mississippians, is that when we talk about the Deep South, when we talk about Mississippi itself, we often focus and research the white Southerners. What we're trying to fight for is equity and equality for Black Mississippians and for hopefully Mississippians across the Deep South in the country. The pandemic and us being in quarantine has allowed us to focus more on the issues that affect us because we're not so distracted by the buzz of everyday fast life that we as Americans are often accustomed to living. The most important thing about this is that it's youth-led and youth tend to get stuff done. I think it's important that we're all change makers because we are in a state that has recently oppressed people that look like us for so long. Just the fact that, that we're standing up and we're organizing the youth to call you know, Mississippi out. They're not going to hear us unless we make them hear us. I would also consider anybody in any avenue in any room that advocates for something a change maker. We have to remove the notion that change makers are just the people at the top. The activists are only the organizers. We're reaching a turning point in race relations within the United States that we haven't seen in a very long time. It's a taking off our glasses moment, seeing America for what it truly is and seeing the problems that we actually need to uh, go ahead and fix. Dr. Ashton here with us, going to be answering your questions about COVID-19. So let's get started. Question one, blood clots after testing positive for COVID-19. What do we know? Well, we don't know what percentage risk someone has of developing blood clots, but we do know based on observation, and this came out of Asia and Europe as well, that people with severe COVID-19 illness are prone to what we call microthrombotic events. Okay. Here you go, back All to right. medical, medical school. school. And that just means minuscule blood clots in, in the blood vessels all over the body, depending on where they are. If it's to your kidneys, you're going to have kidney problems. If it's to your heart, you could have heart problems. Um, we don't really understand why. We can see this in settings of infection. We can see this in settings of low blood oxygen level. But this is one of those mysterious features that we're still trying to figure out. All right, next question here. Is there an increase in positive cases in people under 40, as some states are reporting? Absolutely, there is. This is a trend not just in one state, but we're seeing it really across a lot of states in the Sun Belt. Um, the good news is that even though people in their 20s, 30s and below 40 getting sick with COVID-19, they're not getting as seriously ill 
necessarily requiring hospitalization. But the theory is that this is directly due to dropping your radar, you know, your vigilance in terms of behavior. These people thinking that they're immune, they're vulnerable, and they're getting sick. All right. A question everybody has. How close are we to getting a vaccine approved and distributed? Well, the timeline is still the timeline, TJ. A lot of companies going into phase three clinical trials here in the U.S. in July. That means trying to test 10, 20, 30,000 people. Dr. Anthony Fauci is still saying possibly by the beginning of 2021. But remember, it's probably is not just going to be one company. It might be a couple. Now they're thinking that we might have to have two doses of a vaccine. That presents a massive manufacturing problem because we have to make hundreds of millions. And that means vials, needles, syringes, stoppers. It's a big ordeal. All right. And finally here, any indication that the presence of COVID-19 antibodies are actually preventing future infections? Short term, yes. Long term, we still don't know because, again, it's only been around about six months. There also is a question about durability. We heard Dr. Fauci talk about that, in other, not just with vaccine um, immunity, but also after natural infection, other coronaviruses, three months, six months, maybe a year. If that's the case, TJ, um, this could be a problem that just the gift that keeps giving, so Uh, to speak. So we're still learning about it. All right, Dr. Ashton, thank you. You As always, we're going to turn now uh, to something else uh, that's been happening during this pandemic. Biking has now emerged as one of the most popular ways for people to get outside and get some exercise safely. So now we have an increased demand for bikes. It's reached unprecedented levels. Manufacturers are experiencing a major shortage in their supply. Let me bring in now to discuss this, uh, Mr. Ryan Zagata. He is the president of Brooklyn Bicycle Company. Ryan, thank you for being here. And what do you see uh, driving this demand right now, this boom? Yeah, TJ, thanks for having me. I think there's really two sides of the equation. You have uh, a population here in the United States and in Canada that is on complete lockdown, um, just looking for an opportunity to get outside. And on on the demand side, there's really three phenomena. You have families or living in suburbs who just want to get out of their house or looking for some sort of recreation. Um, you have every fitness center, gym, spin studio in America have been shut down. So you have an element of people or population who are looking for fitness or some sort of exercise. And then lastly, what we're experiencing here in New York and in every other major metropolitan area is a population that has zero desire to re-engage with public transportation. So we're seeing a, an abundance of commuters who are looking for new and uh, unique and are excuse me, arguably safe ways to get back and commute to the office when things reopen. Now, people would argue this should be great for business, right? But you're essentially sold out of everything. How, what kind of impact are you seeing on your company? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, our phone's been ringing off the hook. It's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, as I mentioned before, the demand is intense. But on the supply side, um, you know, what we're experiencing here in the States, pre, pre, uh, it happened where our supply chain exposure is well in advance of this. So early on in January and February, um, where every single bike supply in the, in the country, in the world rather, has exposure in China, in Vietnam, in Taiwan, in Malaysia. They, their factories were shut down right around the time of the Lunar New Year, so the demand was gone. But to answer your question, um, you know, we have, we have no bikes right now. We have phone calls all day long. We have containers coming in. We had containers landing yesterday. Those are all pre-sold, and we're not going to see any bikes available, at least in our supply chain, uh, to offer new customers until the end of August. All right. Well, uh, since you and I are friends now, Ryan, I'm going to get on that wait list over there, and I'm sure I'll get right to the top. So I'll talk to you after the segment. Uh, Ryan Zagata with the Brooklyn Bicycle Company. Buddy, good to see you. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me, TJ. Our next guest is a hometown hero who's been making headlines this past year for helping the homeless community in her Dayton, Ohio neighborhood. 
She's 13, by the way. She's proving it's never too young to make a difference. And joining us now is founder of Love Conquers, Dayton, Abriella Ruby. Abriella, how did you take this up? How did this become your cause? Well, when I was younger, I would yell for my car seat to my mom to give the homeless food or money because it was so sad to see that they didn't have everything that they needed. And when I was eight, I actually went to New York to perform and we were walking down 42nd Street and there were so many homeless people that I just started crying because it's just so sad. So when I was 12, I knew that I had to do something. Oh, my goodness. It it was so (laughs) I reacted to hear you say when I was younger and you're 13. My goodness, you've done so much (laughs) so early on. But the nonprofit is Love Conquers Dayton. Tell me, what was that first project that led you to uh, forming your own organization here? Our first project was um, making care packs for the homeless. So I collected over $23,000 and donated items for the homeless. And I got my friends together and we handed them out um, in Dayton. And yeah. And so you, get, you got your friends involved as well. Uh, you mentioned you came to New York and you said uh, you were here uh, to perform. Now, I know you're into theater and dance. Was that a theater and, and dance performance? That was a tap performance with Tapology. With tap, okay. Now you have been in touch with some stars about your project. Tell us some of the folks you've uh, kind of reached out to. Um, I messaged Allison Janey and Jessica Vosk, and both of them shared my post. And Jessica Vosk also donated. Okay, that's cool. And to be Allison Janney, uh, I happen to I love me some Allison Janney, and. A lot of these folks are so proud of you and wanted to pass along a message. Hi, Abriella. It's Alice and Janney. I was so impressed when I saw the work that you've been doing to help the homeless in Dayton, Ohio, that I had to share it with my followers. As a fellow Daytonian, it was particularly moving for me to see. It's because of people like you, the world is a better place. And you're showing all your friends by example how they too can make a difference. I'd like to thank your mom, Stephanie, too, for helping you launch such a a wonderful service for our community. And I also found out you're an aspiring actress, so I hope we get to act together one day. In the meantime, keep doing what you're doing. You're an inspiration. Bravo, Abriella. That was crazy. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I know you mentioned uh, also... Uh, there, Jessica Vosk. I want to welcome in now Jessica Vosk. Uh, folks know her from Wicked, who plays Elphaba. Jessica, hi, and say hello, hello to Abriella. Hello, Abriella. Hi, darling. How hi. are you? I'm good. Yeah? Are you, are you surprised? Yes, very much so. <laughs> oh, me too. I, I just, um, look... I, you know, I think you're such a wonderful example for so many people, especially adults out there like myself who get so much inspiration from you and what you're doing is the coolest thing ever. And I just think you're just this budding activist and I'm such a fan and I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. So, uh, and now, Jessica, I'm not sure how much uh, I'm glad she's young and her little heart can take this because we're full of surprises here. Uh, so we just gave her two, but we have a third for her that I wish you now can share with her. Well, you know, Abriella, I thought maybe you might be interested in, in doing three voice lessons with me. 
um, yes. on Skype. And and I don't know if you if that's something that you'd be really into, but should we do it? Because I'd love to offer yes. you some vocal lessons. Yes, please. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. I'm so glad. This is a good day for both of us. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, okay, Abriella, you, you you were talking you were you were talking my ear off before all this stuff came. Now you've gotten shy <laughs> on me. So, uh, Abriella, just just you wrap it up for me here, Abriella. Tell me what you think um, about what's just taking place, and just kind of button it up for us how your work has now led to people wanting to acknowledge you and reward you for what you're doing. Well, I think that people. Most people are good and they want to help, but they don't know how to. So you just have to ask them. And if you get one person to start doing something good, then you can get a lot more people and then it can grow. And I think that's basically you just need to help people whenever you can. Okay, Abriella, I want to stand up and applaud you for what you just said. That was more profound than most of what we're hearing coming out of adults' mouths these days, okay? So, Abriella, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Jessica, good to see you. You all enjoy the lessons, okay? Thank you both all for right. being here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. We've heard a handful of stories out there in the news about pets and COVID-19, leading many pet owners to wonder about the risk to their pets. Well, here to help answer your questions about how to keep those furry friends of yours safe, Dr. Diara Blue from Animal Planet, The Vet Life. Dr. Blue, thank you so much for being here. Going to get right into the questions. We have one here from Rochelle in Michigan. Let's listen. Hi, Dr. Blue. My name is Rochelle Barge from Inkster, Michigan. And one of my favorite things to do is take my fur babies to the dog park. But should I be keeping them socially distanced from other dogs, just like I social distance myself? All right, what do you think, Dr. Blue? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, Michigan, that's my home, so I love to hear that somebody's from Inkster walking dogs. But <laughs> honestly, it's one of those things where the, the COVID-19 virus isn't known to be in animals. It's known to be more so in humans. Uh, it's a virus, so it could always change. But at this point, I wouldn't be overly concerned with the dog spreading the virus from one dog to another. And definitely, it's not classified as zoonotic, so it shouldn't be going from animals to people. At the end of the day, social distancing is what we're doing, so it's probably ideal. But I don't think it's a must at this point. All right. Let's go to Emily now in Indiana. Hi, this is Emily from South Bend, Indiana. We're wondering, should we be cleaning and sanitizing paws after walks in our neighborhood? Thanks. That's that's a fair question, too. So the COVID-19 virus is not what we consider ubiquitous, meaning it's not everywhere. You're not going to just walk on the street on the dirt. It's going to just be on the floor. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to sanitize the paws if you're doing it for that purpose. It's not a bad idea to ever wipe your feet before you go in your home or take your shoes off. So for the same thing for animals, it's it's an okay practice. But if you're doing it for the reason of thinking you're preventing COVID-19, completely not necessary <laughs> that was great advice hey you should be wiping your feet before you go in the house anyway <laughs> that was good I mean, you, 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 you got to you can't come my house with your shoes on <laughs> all right next up let's go to massachusetts and eugenie hi i'm eugenie murray brown from Hingham, massachusetts i recently recovered from coronavirus and i was wondering if dogs can get coronavirus and if they can can they give it back to humans so this is talking about right. passing it back and forth you were kind of hitting on this a minute ago yeah, so, you know, God bless you. I'm glad you recovered. So happy. Um, it's one of those situations that you giving your dog coronavirus is almost next to none at all. I don't think it's something that can happen. Uh, we do. We heard about a couple of tigers in the, in, in the Brooklyn Zoo that got it. We don't know the situations that, it, you know, revolve around that. 
in general, we know that it affects cats and ferrets more so than our canines. So I wouldn't be overly concerned. However, if there are concerns, you can always board that dog uh, or put it with another family member until you have completely recovered. But I don't think it's something that you need to be worried about at all, and especially not them giving it back to you. Again, it's not a zoonotic disease that we know at this point. So it can't go from animals to people. All right. Dr. Blue, he is actually at work, folks. He uh, he has a day yeah. job. He is at work. So we appreciate <laughs> you taking a little break from work. Uh, thanks so I appreciate much. appreciate you, TJ. And you can watch Dr. Blue in The Vet Life on the Animal Planet. Go Cat. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.